Hello and welcome to Map Bites, episode 46. I'm Elaine Giles and I'm here with my co-host, Mike Thomas. In this episode, we're talking, wait for it, Microsoft. Sad software demises, unfortunately, those two aren't linked, calendar calamities and pogo sticks. So what have we been up to? Well, I can assure you we have not been idling. Plenty has been going on at Map Bites headquarters. You're still in mourning for Wave, aren't you? I know. I can't believe they thought it, it wasn't worth keeping on. Um, I don't know if people are aware, but actually, I, I was the one person who used Wave. And seeing as though it was a collaboration tool, I'd have been pretty lonely, wouldn't I? So I think you should come go public and admit... I was the other person that used Wave. <laughs> we were the only two people using Google Wave. <laughs> it felt like it anyway. It did, actually, yes, because we faced... Well, not us personally, but I think Wave users in general felt um, a little unloved because Wave itself wasn't uh, universally adored, was no, it? No, I, I don't think people could understand what it was about but i think i'll leave that around for you no i think it was very 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 badly marketed and um that did not help its cause but i i didn't expect them to just ditch it uh unfortunately we use wave for the show so do you think used blame google used well yes i i did look at it tonight and, and i put a new wave i created a new wave and as i clicked on an old one the new one disappeared so i decided it probably wasn't worth to try and rely on it any further but it was brilliant for what we used it for. I can't believe it. I'm I'm distraught. I'm bereft. It's dreadful. So now we're on Google Docs. Not the same, is it, really? Oh, has the air been blue? The air has been blue. Very blue. I've never used Google Docs much at all, other than to go in and look at it and say, right, this is Google Docs, fine, right, I'm off. It's, I don't like it. And your I'm... biggest complaint, it looks like a document. Well, I think the name <laughs> gives that away. <laughs> Oh, the shame you're giving away what I think publicly. Well, it does. That's the problem. I've I've got this on my 24-inch iMac now, and I've had to make the browser that wide because there's a two-inch strip either side of the well, a document. It is a document. That's got a margin, dear. No, 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 not inside. Oh, the grey bit on the side. The grey bit. Yes, it's made to look like Microsoft Word. I don't want to see borders. What for? I really don't need that. I want my wave back. I want my wave back. Oh. You're not in the slightest bit sympathetic. Of course I am. Yes, because every so. time I open up Google Docs, you're going to suffer for this. Mm. But anyway, that's my wave rant over. Okay. I'm, I'm well, still bereft, still distraught, and we'll never get over it. No, so let's tell the listeners about the new website, shall we? Yes, so one of the things we were doing while we were taking a slight hiatus was rebuilding the MapBytes website, and I think it looks a lot better. It does. It looks very, very impressive, but uh, you've also become a, um, what's the word, a WordPress coding ninja, I think. Oh, absolutely. Well, we've always used WordPress on the MapBytes site, but way back in the beginning, um, it was a case of choose a theme. Uh, somebody else's theme, because I had no idea how they were put together, and put it on the site. And sacrifice and a chicken and sacrifice a chicken and hope for the best. The themes, as far as I were concerned, just changed the look of the site. But as we found, they actually changed what was displayed on it. So to try and make one, to try and find one that looked reasonable enough, you know, closely, closely related to something like you would like it to look. And it really was a case of something like you would like it to look. It, none of them were ever perfect. And then you'd find that certain things disappeared and you really had to compromise. The whole thing was one huge compromise. So we, I think this was the, this is the third time that we've rebuilt it. But this time I did it. So 
I, I often say, don't I? If you want something, doing, do it yourself. So this time I did it. And now it works perfectly, doesn't it? It does. It's perfect. Mm, yeah, exactly. Well, I think so. So uh, if you haven't seen our new website, please do go and have a look. What I actually did was uh, teach myself to build WordPress themes. So I have built one completely from scratch. And since then, I've probably done about three or four more as well. And it now works pretty much exactly as we want it to, I think, doesn't it? I think it's got most things there that we need, hasn't it? Well, we were finding it was actually difficult to put things on the site because the navigation wasn't updating properly and it didn't have child navigation and there was all sorts wrong with it. The themes for WordPress, the quality is very, very variable unless you're spending huge amounts of money on specific themes. And then you've got the problem. It might functionally work, but it doesn't look like you want it to look. So whereas I think if you call something a theme, it should only change how it looks in WordPress. When you change the theme, it actually changes the behavior of the whole site. So teaching myself was not something I was actually looking forward to because I hadn't really coded much in PHP. You're the code monkey. I'm the designer. So I had to bite the bullet and design the thing. And then I had to code it. So I did put that off for as long as I possibly could. And then over the summer, I think June, uh, July, August time, finished it up in September. And we finished with that. But while we were doing it, we also created a new newsletter for MacBytes. And we are in the final stages of um, finalising it. That's really clear, isn't it? Do you want to explain that? <laughs> um, yes, we're setting up the newsletter. Uh, we've set up a, uh, a subscription sign up. So please sign up. Uh, details on the website. Brilliant. That was nearly as good as mine. <laughs> <laughs> Got the message across. You reckon? Oh, okay, then. We've also done seven MacBite live events, which is, I didn't think we'd done that many, but clearly we have. And two of them were Apple events. I had a complete blast. Don't know about you. Yes, I did as well. Yeah. Good. The first one was the first event that Apple had decided to broadcast the video live. So what we were doing was that uh, we were chatting at the beginning, audio chat, and then as the event started to be broadcast and streamed, we turned the audio off and just text chatted. But then we found that people, some people were at work and that the problem they had was, which I wasn't aware of, obviously I would not be aware of this, that you can't stream the event to IE. In fact, I, I'm not sure if it's only Safari. Does Firefox work? I think it had to be Safari. Oh, right. So it was worse than I thought. Mm. So the people who were stuck at work on Windows, uh, lockdown environment, couldn't actually see the video. What they were getting was audio. So quick readjustment. I think Jane was having some problems in Oz as well, right at yeah. the beginning. So quick readjustment of machines. And I managed to relay the video so um, everybody could see it. So you could ignore it if you had your own copy. And if not, uh, we managed to relay it. So that was great fun. I, I hadn't actually set up to do that. So when you came back, because you're usually a little bit late when we start doing lives as you're walking the dog, when you came back, oh, it was Wire City all over the place. But it worked. It worked very, very well. So there have been two Apple events. You know what that means, don't you? Mm, I do. Well, do tell the listeners. Oh, two ultra fast roundups. I know. How on earth am I going to fit in? I, I'm not going to break the world record if I've got to do two, am I? I'm sure you can try. Oh, I've done it. I know I've done it this time. Absolutely. Because we've had Apple TVs and we've had MacBook Airs and new software and lots of toys, iPods, things. Yes, absolutely. Lots to do. So I'm still confident I can break that world record. Are you ready? I'm ready. Right. Stopwatches. Ready to go? Three, two, one. Ooh. So I take it you liked it then? Ooh. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I liked all of it. Sadly, there were no purchases. Yeah, I liked all of this as well. Um, I liked the um, the little square thing. What was it called? The nano. The, nano. the, the nano. little square thing. Oh, the embarrassment. Yes, I like the nano. I I wanted, maybe I still want actually, um, the nano uh, for my, my watch. That is so sad. <laughs> well, my watch broke. Very time timely. Oh. <laughs> Oh, that wasn't in the script, was it? No, my watch There's broke. There's a script. Uh, very t- you never told me there was a script. No, not the t- not the time aware. Not the time aware. If there is, I'm not following it. No, absolutely not. My watch broke. Can we get back to this? My watch broke. I think the week it was announced. So conveniently, um, yeah, I'd have liked one of those things. Mm, I'm sure you would. I'd have also liked an air. Really? Yes. Not too sure about an air. If someone else is paying, I'd take an air. Possibly as well as, but there again, I don't know. I wouldn't take an air over the iPad. I wouldn't take an air over the MacBook Pro. But if um, if Santa was if, bringing one, if Santa was bringing one, yes. Or if there's a uh, a bring your own computer to work, and we will pay you for the privilege, as some companies are doing, then I would probably choose a MacBook Air because it's light and um, you know it can it can run the basic apps. Mm, I'm still not totally sold. Oh, I'm well. not. I'm not. If I get one, you'll want to play with it. Really? Anyway, it's all, it's all a big if at the moment. Mm, sad. Obviously, if I didn't have an iPad, I'd be more interested. But the week it was announced, I sat in the car on the Saturday, a couple of days later, with my iPad, working away with it. And I thought, would you do this with an Air? And I came to the conclusion, I think, for me, it would still be a little bit awkward. Yeah, you'd you'd have to push your knees up and uh, really <laughs> just the form factor. I was I wasn't talking about the kind of yoga you seem to. You make. talk about the form factor. I'll talk about the uh, physicalities. Really? Mm. If you sat in the front seat, you'd have to push your knees up so that you could rest the keyboard on it and have the lid lifted up. I guess so. I was thinking it's just awkward. It's just awkward. You would have to have somewhere to put it and. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it's a desk thing. I have taken my iPad out and I've covered events with it. So if I've gone to a conference, I've managed perfectly well with it. And of course, the battery life's amazing. So I and I didn't take a physical keyboard with me. I do have a wireless keyboard for it. But I, I the first event I went to, I didn't take that. And the second one, I didn't have a desk. The first one I did, it was more of a conference situation. The second event I took it to, it was just chairs lined up. So Again, I think I'd find it very difficult to type on because it, with it being a normal keyboard, I'd want to type in my normal way and there would be just no way to hold it. And if I had to type one handed on it, that would be very awkward. So I'm, I'm just not, not 100% sold on it. But like you say, if somebody wants to buy me one for Christmas, obviously I would put all these reservations on one side and, and test it for the MacBiters. Okay. Hint, hint. Christmas list. You heard it here. Okay, you heard it here. I'm sure somebody will. Anyway, onward, onward. Also released this week was... Microsoft Office 2011 for Mac. Yeah, and VBA is back. Uh, they took that out of 2008, didn't they? Um, to a lot of complaints. Uh, I, I guess it's because it's 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 Intel and it supports it. Or do you think it was just down to customer demand? Apparently when it was taken out, it was taken out because it would have taken them too long. They wanted to get something out because obviously 2004 was very old by then. So to get 2008 out, which was the first Intel version, 
it would have held it back too long if they'd have waited to put the VBA in. So I always felt when 2008 was released, it was a, they missed a huge opportunity. I mean, obviously, if they couldn't get it the VBA in in time, they had to release something. But it always felt to me, I, I would not have gone for that at all because the lack of VBA would mean that I wouldn't be able... That, that to me, is one of the reasons to actually have the real version of Office and not a replacement like Open Office or one of the others. So to not have VBA in it would have been a killer, I think, at the time. I am glad it's back because I think it, with that, it does mean all the applications that you create in Office, you would be able to use on the Mac, or I'm assuming you would. It would very much depend on whether the VBA was identical and what the gotchas were. Yeah, I've not gone into any detail on the VBA as to, to what's missing, if there's any kind of bits of the object model that's missing, anything like that, any any automation or integration between the apps. So uh, I'll have to see about that. I, I suppose I could try running some of my Windows applications that I've built on there and, and see if they break. Well, when you say you come home and you say, I built this, built that, I want to have a look at it. Sometimes you come across gotchas with between versions of Office or even on different, just different machines. You know, something works on yeah. one machine, it doesn't work on another. If you're going to take that level of automation and take it to a different platform, you could find that it just doesn't work at all. So I think that is something that you would have to take a much deeper look at before you declared it to be a complete success. Yeah. And of course, the other big thing is the ribbon. I was no great fan of the ribbon uh, back when 2007 for Windows was in beta. I did try it. I was no great fan of it at all. It was supposed to be adaptive. It never guessed what I wanted to do. But I looked at it. I had to use, at the shame of this admission, I had to use PowerPoint on Windows and there was the ribbon tormenting me. And I, I must say it wasn't actually as bad as I feared it might be. That, from me, is a ringing endorsement. I have no problems with the ribbon, but, uh, you know, I'm using it every day now. But I don't think the ribbon in the Mac version is 100% identical. Uh, you can't either, you, you can't hide it or you can hide it. But if you can hide it, it, it shrinks, doesn't it, to, to look like a menu bar. Yeah. And you can't click on one of the menu bars alone. I think you have to click twice. So the first click would expand it and then the second click would make active the section that you required, which to me seems odd because I always had a problem with with any version of Office, really. Um, right back, as soon as I got a widescreen monitor, I wanted the toolbars down the side and I actually put mine there. And it made sense to me because your monitor is, unless you've got one of these that pivots, it's always going to be wider than it is tall. So why waste the space on interface? which is if you think about how Mac apps work, you have the flexibility to put the thing where you want. Um, I won't say panel. I'll say inspector. You can move that where it makes most sense for you. But with the ribbon, it's docked at the top, isn't it? And you can't move it. No, you can't. So mm, better than it was, but not 100% there for me. But I think putting it in the Mac version at least means that there is some correlation between the Mac version and the PC version, which to entice people to the platform is probably going to be necessary. And at least it means they don't have to learn a new interface. So I'm cool with that. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's not all great, is it? It's not all good. There are still some issues. I was horrified this week to read about the activation. I have installed, I hasten to add, not on my main Mac. This was a necessity, believe me. I had to install Fusion and within that, Windows 7. 
And what I was doing was I was moving a virtual machine. So I moved this virtual machine and I just ran it to make sure everything was OK. It ran and I got a message and this message actually said to me, this is an illegal pirated copy of Windows. There was no niceties about this message. There was no, um, it was unequivocal. There, there was no, it might be, it could be. Would you kindly do this? It just told me plain it was a pirated version. Now, if anybody has a legitimate version of Windows, I do, because I'm a Microsoft partner. And you're admitting that on a Mac podcast? Oh, yikes. Now look what you made me do. <laughs> um, as I was saying, so my copy is definitely leg legitimate and it made me reactivate it. Now, obviously, I have multiple licenses because I'm on one of their schemes. So that wasn't a problem. But the fact it gave me that message and the tone of the message, I thought was too much. I thought it was too strong. They put out all these rationale, the reasons, the full bit as to why they put activation into their products. And I don't believe it. It's all apparently for my own benefit to save me from having pirated software. I bought it from Microsoft. A third party wasn't involved. My software comes directly from Microsoft and they have just displayed a dialog box telling me it's a pirated copy. Fantastic. Brilliant marketing that. So that doesn't please me on Windows at all. I, I accept it because it's there and there's nothing I can do. But on a Mac, the activation's even worse. You only get 15 days. Now, what you after which time you have to activate it or it stops working. On the Windows platform with Office, you get 30 days before you need to enter the serial number. But you can defer that for 90 days overall, I believe. So I think they should at least, it, it's as if they're, what they're implying is, if you're on a Mac, you're more dodgy than a Windows user. So therefore, we're going to be stricter, which I don't think's fair. It's obviously their software. They can do what they like with it. But I think that's a little bit strict. And knowing what happens when it deactivates itself or put put more gently, I suppose, needs reactivating. Instead of the Windows version, which still functions to some degree, the Mac version is more crippled, a lot more crippled. And that really does concern me. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from uh, with that. And uh, I I I don't know what their what their reasoning is behind that. You'd have, you'd have thought it would be the, the the similar to to Windows. I don't know why they would do that either, um, because there's no volume licensing involved in in terms of what's available for sale retail. It isn't included as part of the partner programs either. So I don't know what their rationale behind it is. I don't like that though. That that wouldn't mean for me. It would really, really make me think very carefully because if I if it deactivated itself and I could still access my documents, that's one thing. But if it deactivates itself to the point that I can't get to my documents unless I reactivate, that would concern me. Now, obviously, if I can reactivate, then all is well and good. But I have had situations many years ago, I think, when activation was new. So maybe it's got a little better. I, I really don't know. But I had situations where the activation servers were down, the phone lines were down and there was nothing I could do. Now, at the time, I had more than one computer, so I would take it to another computer. I just don't want to go back to that because one of the, the when I got a Mac and I put it on the, the table and I thought, OK, let's have a look at this then. It was the, the fact that everything just worked and it was so, so different. 
to the hoops you had to jump through with virtually everything on Windows. That was what was so alluring to me. To go back to that, to kind of play along with Microsoft and, and virtually say to them, oh, OK, this activation's archaic, but oh, OK, I need your software, so I'll do it. I, I'm, I, don't, I don't see me doing that. Well, aside from the activation issue, there's uh, also some features that are missing. Outlook, for example, uh, there's no sync with iCal or Google Calendar. Uh, it does support Exchange, but it must be 2007. And I'm sure there's a lot of corporates haven't upgraded yet to 2007. Certainly where I work, they haven't. Um, there's no um, Outlook in the student edition. That really surprises me because I would have thought that was their way in. Without yeah. being a virtual standard, if you put that in the student edition, that just makes total sense to me. More so than PowerPoint, really. I know people make a lot of presentations these days, but if you think about what PowerPoint's intended for, I think more people would use Outlook than PowerPoint. I think they would. I've also read, um, I've not tested this myself, but I've read that the word macro recorder is a bit quirky. Somebody said that it, it produces different results for the same actions uh, when they actually did similar tests repeatedly, which sounds a bit weird. <laughs> I'm not surprised. No, I think I think with that, that's probably something that needs to be tested a little bit more. And maybe the first patch will deal with small issues like that. What concerned me more was you're talking about features that are missing. There's actually whole products missing. Um, there's no version of Access, which for you when your development, I know you develop in Access. So I could have seen you going for that if it had Access. That would have been great if, if they had put Access in there. Exactly. It would have saved, saved me firing up a virtual machine just to, just to read an Access database. Exactly, just to, just to get, get access to the data. Um, you would have to export it and then fiddle and then import. Oh, no, 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 you're just not going to do it. So I've actually this week heard from two or three people who have asked the question, can you use an Access database on the Mac platform? And I've had to say no. Not not natively, not like that. Obviously, you can run virtualization, you run Windows. Oh, no, no, no. But just not in the way that you could open an Excel spreadsheet or open a Word document, which would be nice. When I was on Windows, just as I was leaving it, a version of OneNote, the, the first version of OneNote was released, which is a great note-taking app. And again, there, there is no note-taking app. So OneNote is not available. That would be amazing on the Mac platform because what the Mac supplies, there are lots of note applications and I probably use most of them. I'm thinking Circus Pony's Notebook and Evernote and Curio and DevonThink. So there's lots of ways that I track notes. But again, if there was a version of OneNote, you would have that synchronization with Windows. So I'm surprised they've not done that, given the, the number of students who choose to have a MacBook. It would make sense to, to have it available for the same reasons, as you've said, there's a student edition. It seems logical to put OneNote in the student edition, but there's no OneNote. There's also no Visio, which I will admit it's unlikely to have much impact on the competition, which would be OmniGraffle, but a lot of people... When I switched to the Mac platform, a lot of the people I knew, um, especially trainers who worked on Windows, when they said when they thought seriously about moving to the Mac, said to me, what am I going to do about Visio? Way more than asked me about Word or Excel, because there are so many alternatives. And the other thing that would be missing and probably a blessed relief for you is Project. Yeah, definitely. You're thrilled about that, aren't you? 
<laughs> your favourite Microsoft product? Not. <laughs> I, I must admit, my, when I first started training many, many moons ago, Project was my first course. What an introduction to training. Mm, baptism of fire, you mean? Yeah, exactly. It, is, it was at the time. I think I, I trained version two. It was dreadful. It really was dreadful. And I think the expectation of the people that I was training was so high for the product. Every course was going to feel like a letdown. You tried over the course of two, two between two to five days of project courses. You tried to let them down gently, didn't you? And, and break the bad news to them piece by piece. <laughs> No, I think they thought it was going to do a lot more than it did. But I still think it's something that might be good to have on project, on the Mac platform. I think so. I think because so, Because yeah. there must be art departments. I know at your company there is a department that has Macs, and they must be involved in projects of some description. So they must have to have a Windows machine to access the project information. They do. Mm. Yeah. So it would be nice to have that as an option. It just doesn't feel that it's the full thing yet unfortunately i do think it's not all there i do think it's the best mac version by far though yes it, it is intel you know it runs it nicely on the intel platform it has now got the vba back that makes it viable for the enterprise the fact that they have lost entourage and put outlook in is a step in the right direction so it is the best mac version so far you seem to be convincing yourself to buy it no, I was just about to say, but it's not for me. <laughs> no, no, I can't be doing with activation like that. Um, I didn't. I don't like the messages that come up, and I don't like the fact that I'm beholden to Microsoft to access my files. So, no. And you don't even need it to create a docx file, do you? No, I, I did have a requirement to create some docx files recently, and I tried everything. I assumed Pages would save as docx files. It came as quite a shock. It didn't. I then tried OpenOffice. I tried NeoOffice. I tried everything before I decided very, very reluctantly I was going to have to go over to Windows and make these doc files, docx files. And then I found LibreOffice, which was brand new. It's a fork of OpenOffice. Um, the reason that they've done that is all to do with the legality of who owns what and moving the project forward, the open office project forward. So they've taken the code and they've created their own fork of it called LibreOffice. And I was very surprised when I tried it. It was literally the last chance that I had. It was the only thing I hadn't tried. And it has full DocX support. So that was brilliant. So I'm at the moment, I have NeoOffice, I have OpenOffice, they're all installed, but I'm actually using LibreOffice and it looks identical. You really can't tell the difference. But with the extra file format support it has, um, it means I don't have to go into Windows just to create a file. And you had to do that today and you know what a nightmare it is. Yeah, I, I actually opened up my Vista laptop, connected to the, um, the corporate network through the VPN. I wish I hadn't bothered because the files that I wanted um, were actually locally, so it was actually quicker to get um, a pen drive out. But yeah, you know, I know what you mean. Not to mention the fact that your password had expired over the weekend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was really helpful as well. That was my own fault for leaving it. You know, your password expires in 12 days. We recommend you change it. 11 days, 10 days. You know what you like. You just leave it until the death. And I did. Until it says your password expired yesterday. Please do something about it. Yeah. Well, we've talked about the ribbon. And I think at the moment, interfaces seem to be a bit of a moving target. I'm thinking of the ghostly pale iTunes 10. And 
there was also moving buttons in iTunes 10. Now, I've told Steve before, do not mess with my buttons, Mr. Jobs. But he did. I do like the new style volume control, though. And thankfully, the transition was much easier than iTunes 9, which I was still fixing eight, nine months later, as I'm sure people will remember. I remember, yeah. Um, I've I've got used to it. I've got used to the interface, but I know what you're saying. You you, you look down your list on the left hand side, and you you knew you know that your podcasts were in purple, and I think your music was in blue, and then you've got all your your smart lists were purple as well. I think, but um, I think I've just got used to it. Um, I wasn't overly keen to start with, and I can't actually say it's grown on me greatly. I have immediately got used to where the buttons are so after a week or so. I have kept an old install of um, an iTunes, um, yeah, an iTunes 9 installation, just really for comparison. And when I look at that on the other machine, I, I do think the interface looks way better. Now, there were some options that you had where you can sort of hack the terminal and restore the icons. But the problem with that is as soon as you apply an update, you've got to do it again. So that's why I left it alone. And I, and I hoped it would grow on me. But I can't honestly say I, I, I still don't think it's an improvement. But looking with uh, there's obviously now a new iPhoto out, iPhoto 11. And the interface on that seems to point the way to Lion. So that seems to be paler in a way. It's not quite as pale as iTunes and there's full screen options and the scroll bars are different. So I'm thinking there could be big changes and things may look paler or at least monotone, monotone in colour. I'm not looking forward to it, really. It looks like it's going that way, doesn't it? Do you remember Ping? Oh, yes. Vaguely. Yeah, what? Whatever happened to Ping? <laughs> I did sign up, you know. Yeah, I signed up. Um, I signed up. Uh, the rush in the first few days when it was all shiny, shiny new. All my Twitter friends signed up and, you know, we pinged each other, if that was a word. But, uh, you know, I haven't touched it for weeks. In fact, I totally forgot about it until we, st <laughs> until we started putting the show notes together. Um, I, I don't think... Oh, I did. I, I liked an album. Oh, that was the sum extent of my interaction with it. You liked an it. album. I liked an album. That sounds a bit Facebookish, and I'm useless with that. But <laughs> Do yes, you poke I, it as well. No, no, I didn't. No, I, I, I saw this album that somebody had mentioned something on, and I commented on it, and that was the sum total of my interaction. I'm afraid. Um, I'm not good with that kind of thing. It was one of those things. That I, I might be listening to music on Spotify. That's the problem. Mm. I might be listening to music elsewhere. I'm not necessarily. Um, within itunes i what i'd like it to have is the ability to like podcasts <laughs> i'd like that wouldn't i yes we could mm. like map bites exactly we? um it reminds me of game center actually that they brought out for the iphone i think i've got about five friends on that i'm hoping that i, I think i should be ref refused to be drawn <laughs> it's embarrassing <laughs> go on ask me how many friends have you got on game center elaine can I include you? Yes. <laughs> because if I don't, it would be even more embarrassing. If I include you, Mike, I have two. Aww. So thank you, Steve. You know who you are. You're my. <laughs> Apart from Mike, you're my only friend on Game Center. <laughs> A little plea. Please make friends with Elaine. <laughs> no, don't, don't. I don't have any games. I don't have games. You know, uh, what was that other one? Angry, angry Birds. Angry Birds. No. I haven't got Angry Birds. You have? No, I haven't. No. Well, you've got me. You don't need Angry Birds. <laughs> you an Angry Bird? I didn't say that. I did not say that. <laughs> no, I, I don't really play games. So um, that kind of passed me by, I'm afraid. 
So shamefully, I have one contact, which I suppose is one better than none. Yeah. Now, we just mentioned iPhoto. Um, isn't there something in there to excite you? Oh, yes. Info panel, yeah, right. Um, should we move on? There were disappointments on other fronts, though, weren't there? Yes, I. As soon as iLife was announced, I was oh ever so hopeful at that second live event for iWork. But no, um, I really, really need iWork to be updated. Why? What's so desperate about getting iWork updated? Well. I live in Keynote. I very seldom touch pages. I do use numbers for anything that I need a spreadsheet for, but I live in Keynote and the more I use it, it is sort of reaching two years old. The more I use it, the more I wish it had certain features that it doesn't have, sadly. And I was so hopeful to, for my hopes to be dashed, I'm afraid. What features do you want? Um, there's a few things that are probably a bit odd that your average person wouldn't want, but by comparison with PowerPoint, it's starting to look as though there's bits missing. I'm thinking particularly of things like SmartArt, which have been around in Microsoft Office since 2007. And they, the SmartArt features are actually really useful. I know that you and I don't have much time for things like WordArt. That was never good, ever. It should have been removed surgically. But the smart art features are actually quite nice. So for business diagrams, I think that would be a nice addition. It would. When I, when I first heard the term smart art, I thought it was just going to be word art on steroids. I must admit, so did I. I was terrified. <laughs> but I remember prepping for um, some events for when, uh, Office 2007, and I, smart art was one of the features that is across the board. It's actually not just in PowerPoint, it's in Word and Excel as well. And in Excel, it's brilliant. It really, really is very, very good in Excel. It makes, I always felt with Excel that the spreadsheets you could produce looked pretty poor. But with the addition of the smart art and the new chart styles, um, there were also the heat charts. I still think numbers is better for layout, but it was nice to see the, the smart art being added. And the other thing in PowerPoint this time is 2010. I know when you did a demo of it, the features you have in there for photo editing are quite stunning. They are, and video editing as well. So I don't see Apple doing that because of iPhoto and iMovie. Yeah. But it would be nice if they did sort of beef up the features a little bit in, in that regard. My requirements are probably slightly different than that. Uh, the export drives me mad. It resets itself every single time you export something. You, it, it doesn't even remember the settings within your current session. As soon as you've exported, it resets everything. And I am exporting the whole of the time. So that drives me mad. But I, I'm, a re I'm fingers crossed for smart art. I don't know whether I, I'm whether that's. Too far, too far, maybe not, but I'd like to see it. I'd like to see it because it would make it better in an, um, an enterprise environment because otherwise people are going to say, oh, all the features are really nice. You know, you've got these transitions um, and, you know, you can export to video and things like that. And it does look stunning, but it feels like a bit of a toy when Microsoft Office has the enterprise features in it, you know, specifically business features. So if they want to compete on that level, I think they should add those kind of features to it. I'd really like that. I do think, though, that iWork will be the first Apple apps in the new App Store. I think that is a given, don't you think? Yeah, I. they're probably saving it for that, to be honest, deliberately. 
It makes sense if they do, to be honest, because if they don't, then, then what else are they going to put in there? They could put iLife apps in there, they could put iWork in there, but it would already have been released. So to entice people into the new app store, I think it it's, makes logical sense for it to be iWork. And I hope it is, because other than that, I'm going to have to wait even longer. Ah, uh, the new app store. So many cans of worms, where do we start? Ah, uh, should we start with licensing? It freaked me out when I, when I heard about that. I know it was coming and it makes financial sense for Apple. Absolutely. But I've got so much software. I was concerned. Yeah. You, you know, you, even something like, um, you know, iWork or iLife with, with the family licenses and, and other software where we've got multiple licenses, you just wonder how it's going to work. I'm hoping that they've learned lots of lessons from the iOS app store. But yes, when I think of how many different licensing models I have with the software that we already have, and I do do the tracking of that, I keep um, the purchase correspondence and serial numbers and stuff in DevonThink. And I also put the serial numbers into 1Password. And 1Password then makes it really easy to install things. But when I actually look at them, I have family licenses. I have products that for which I have multiple licenses. And sometimes you have to buy certain numbers. Um, I'm thinking Typeinator. Uh, I think you can buy one license, two licenses, five or ten. And I'm not too sure about five. but I ended up buying 10, even though I don't actually need 10. So for companies who provide multiple licenses like that, I really don't know what they're going to do. And then, of course, as you start looking at your software, you are immediately thinking, how is all of this going to be transitioned to the App Store framework? I'm thinking the Omni Group have come out and said that they're really keen on, on the App Store concept. So I own everything they've ever made and I've got family licenses for most of it, I think. I'm just wondering what will happen. Will I be able to carry on using what I've got? Will they shut down their store eventually? I don't know with that. Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of unanswered questions, isn't there? And uh, I'm sure, well, I'd like I'd like to think that before they actually launch it, all these questions will be answered. But, uh, you know, who knows? Three years on, we're still saying that about the App Store, the iOS App Store. That's true. That is true. <laughs> I know one of the things that, that, that is logical, a logical step to transition existing purchases would be to give promo codes. But if you think about the way um, iTunes works at the moment, promo codes only work in America. Yeah. Um, I've seen companies uh, have giveaways on, on Twitter and they'll give away uh, promo codes. And I think they'll actually say, because, of course, it's of not much interest to me, but they'll actually say, if you try to use the code and it doesn't work, then somebody else has already used it. So you just put these codes out and then you can get a free application. I think 1Password do that a lot, but it doesn't work here. So there are uh, in place at the moment in the, in the iTunes store, you've got geographic protectionism. So what on earth is going to happen with apps? Are they just going to totally ignore that? Seems odd to me. I'm not at all sure how that's going to work. And of course, once you get geographic over things, geographic pricing springs to mind. Um, in America, it's obviously charging dollars. Over here, we have pounds. And then the exchange rate, it doesn't actually seem to change. If I look at the price of apps now and I compare that with the price of apps over 12 months ago, the apps are probably around the same price, but the exchange rate is very, very different. Mm. Now, at the moment, it's working in our favour, I think. I remember buying um, OmniFocus for iPad and being quite surprised that the exchange rate seemed to work nicely in my favour. 
But I don't know whether you can say that that's going to stay that way. We've had geographic pricing and, and, and what you're calling geographic protectionism uh, before with a, a certain other large software company, haven't we? You mean Adobe, don't you? I, I wasn't going to mention it. <laughs> Well, I have something I call the Adobe Exchange Rate that bears no relation whatsoever to the real exchange rate. Um, I'm, think- I'm talking about Creative Suite where there was there was a huge, I'll call it a markup in Europe. So we, we were paying a penalty for, for Europe, weren't we? I think Adobe prefer to think of it as um, a differential yeah. rather than a markup. But yes, I agree with you. The price is ludicrous. <laughs> uh, the pricing difference is ludicrous. I don't think Adobe have ever actually tried to sort of justify it to, to that degree. What they have said, I remember a while ago, and I thought, what a ludicrous statement, was they charge the price in a market that the market will bear. And I thought the market is screaming blue murder here, but they'll have to pay it if they want the software anyway, because there's nothing else that you could really use. Obviously, if you're a home user, you'd probably go for Pixelmator. It's, it's a lot cheaper. But in a corporate environment, you're not going to do that. So they will sell it. But yes, geographic pricing is never good and it never seems to work out. But everybody probably feels the same, that it never works out in their favour. Mm. But if you look at things like Creative Suite, you can honestly say in Europe, it really, really doesn't. The other thing that annoys me intensely is in Europe, we obviously have to pay VAT. And the VAT rate that you pay is in the country of the supply. So I think for some software, and I'm thinking Adobe is one of them, I ended up paying 21% VAT because I think that was the Irish rate at the time. Now, obviously, our VAT rate's going up in the new year as well, so they'll have to take account of that. But paying VAT in the country of supply, if I can't buy it anywhere else, if I can't just go into an Apple store and buy a disc, then I'm going to have to pay more and there's nothing I can do about it, it, it depending on where they choose to supply it from, which doesn't seem overly fair. The only thing I can think of that you could possibly do to mitigate that somewhat and to reduce your overall expenditure for software is if how this is going to work is via iTunes somehow um, in the same way the iOS store does, then maybe you could buy iTunes vouchers and we recently got some vouchers at 33% off. So that would neatly take care of that. But we don't know if that is how it's going to work at the moment. So pricing and licensing, I think, are two huge areas. And I, like you, I'm hoping they've got it covered. But I'm not 100% confident. I'm nowhere near 100% confident they've got it covered. Now, um, another question that comes to mind is what apps it's going to cover. Is it going to cover you know, all apps? Is it going to cover just the, the major uh, apps? I don't know. Well, I think that's going to depend on how the developers of the apps take to it. Um, some are going to embrace it as they have done the iOS store. Others probably are going to be a little bit more wary. And you've also got problems where maybe an app, they, they would like to put it in the store and they can't get it in the store. Maybe because I've seen um, snippets of the rules and regulations and the rules are quite strict. So if you're calling external appies or whatever, maybe you're not going to be able to get in the store. I'm also thinking things like, can you imagine downloading Creative Suite <laughs> via, via the app store on each machine? Or um, Final Cut. Or Microsoft Office. Yeah. So I, I don't see things like that, at least at the moment. Um, and I'm wondering as well, if somebody goes in the app store, is there going to be an option for what I'd call a traditional purchase? 
So if um, Apple put iWork and the iWork apps separately in the store, would I still be able to go to an Apple store and buy a disc or not? And I, I think long term, not. But immediately, it wouldn't surprise me if they didn't give you that option. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, and it could also see the, the sort of demise of, you know, the, the people like Digital River and Kadji and places like that. Can't say I'm over fond of them, <laughs> to be honest. But yes, I take your point. They've made a business of providing that functionality. And now that's going over to Apple. I was going to call them pimps. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I take your point. No, what I, the problem I have with them is um, there are some places where it's, it's a small purchase and, and you probably wouldn't have to pay VAT on it. And of course, they slap the VAT on top of that. Then they slap a silly exchange rate on, which is their own exchange rate, unless you pay with certain... Oh, it's, it's horrendous. And then there's problems where... Well, I consider it a problem. I put whatever I want to purchase in the basket and then I go through the procedure. And when I get to the checkout, I find that they've added something in. Oh, it'll be something esoterically named like um, continued download option. And they want to charge me five dollars for that or ten dollars for it. Or, you know, would you like a bill? That'll be two pounds fifty extra. Would you like us to send you a disc with it on? That'll be £22 extra. And they've added all these extras on, so I've got to be quite careful that I do take things off, which, like you're saying, it's pimping. It, mm. It's making their living on top of something else, by buying a piece of software, and they obviously want to maximise their investments. So I, I don't particularly like those, but, hey, Apple are going to take 30%. I bet Digital River are um, crying all the way to the bank at the moment. We never took 30%. <laughs> I actually don't know how what percentage they did take. So I don't really know for suppliers and developers whether it would be more cost-effective to pay Apple 30% or not, or whether they're going to have to pass some of that expense on. I do hope not, but it wouldn't surprise me. Well, it's all up in the air at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, and there's other issues, you know, multiple downloads. Do you need to install per machine? Can you save your installation files locally? Can you transfer them from one machine to another? I'm thinking they're bringing out machines like the MacBook Air. And if you have to store your installation files, you're going to need bigger hard drives than are actually available. Um, you've also got, I know when something comes out, like recently, I think the last day or so, there's been a patch for the new version of iPhoto. And I actually elected, because we have a family pack, so I've got it installed on multiple machines. I elected to not run it via software update. I decided to download the patch and then I put it in my Dropbox and I installed it that way. So I don't actually have to download it multiple times. Are you even going to have that option? And then, of course, there's the big question with what Apple will and won't let in. Just imagine no more windy apps on your desktop. I haven't got one to start with. Neither have I. Oh, good. This is a great shortfall we have. <laughs> but either way, I can't see Apple being very supportive of certain apps. No, I wouldn't have thought so. I could mention porn apps, but I better not, because if you don't quickly say, I haven't got any of those either. Yes, I haven't got one of those either. Oh, very nicely done. Very nice. Have you? Done. No, no, absolutely not. No. Good. <laughs> not even for research purposes. No, not at all. I'm actually hoping that the App Store could possibly bring an end to the annual software tax. Yes, Toast, I'm looking at you. Although, to be honest, there was no version of Toast this year, no new version. Um, it was actually just included as part of the Mac Update bundle, the recent Mac Update bundle. So I think we can deduce from that that Toast 11 will be out in January. You heard it here first. But one of the things that did come out recently that horrified me was Parallel 6. I think I ranted on Twitter. And I think I was quite right to, to rant on Twitter. 
I got an email and it said, you know, upgrade your version of Parallels. And I thought, I'm sure I just did that. I'm absolutely sure I just did that. I wasn't 100% sure because I don't use it. I'd actually bought it for my father. He has some software that's Windows only and it doesn't run on Fusion for reasons best known to itself. So he has to have Fusion for one application and Parallels for another. So I thought, I'm sure I recently updated this. I'm sure I did. So I checked and it was a full upgrade. It was going from Parallels 5 to Parallels 6. So I checked my software file. 10 months because I bought it the day it was released. I bought, I upgraded from four to five and it was only 10 months ago. And they haven't really put out anything in the way of sort of Parallels 5.5. Here's a handful of free updates for you. They seem to jump from version to version to version so fast and charge you virtually the full price. I know they do some offers and stuff, but honestly, 10 months. Don't you find that a bit much for a full version upgrade? It's not good, is it? See, I'd be quite happy if it was iWork every 10 months. I'd probably be happy to pay as well. Obviously, don't tell Steve that. But 10 months, I'd, I just don't think for, for something like Parallels, that's overly good. I really don't. There are other applications that seem to come out virtually annually that I have less objection to paying for. Um, I'm thinking Curio. Curio comes out about every 11 months, uh, not 11, 13 months. So just over a year. And it is a quite an expensive application. But when they bring it out, they've usually put in some fantastic feature. And I look at the feature and I think, would you pay for that feature? And every time I've said yes, the features they've added in have really helped me use the application more and more. So for an application where you're actually adding some massive functionality, great. But I think if you're just speed bumping it a little bit, you know, you could give us a bit of a break or give us a really, really cost effective upgrade instead of just expecting us to pay around 60 to 70 percent of the full price after 10 months. That's worse than Adobe. To all the Adobe haters out there, it's never just 10 months. It could be 18, but it's not 10. I think 10 months is ridiculous, so I wasn't too pleased with them. And I didn't upgrade. But there again, on my father's machine, I've reached the point of it. If it isn't broken, don't fix it. Because we did install a patch to just, just update, if you remember. Do you remember what happened? I don't. Remind me. I think it was an update to Parallels as well that did it. And we installed it. This application he needs is a radio application, so it has sound. And the sound stopped working on his laptop. That's right, yeah. Mm. So we had to roll back and all sorts with that. So I reached a point where I said to him, is this working? And he said, yes. And I thought, right, image it. That's it. Never updating that again. Just leave it alone. So I really, I, I couldn't even risk updating Parallels because the last time I updated it, it broke everything. So that was uh, not great either. OK, well, from the Mac App Store to uh, Calendar Calamities. Now, Mobile Me's new calendar is now out of beta. So have you upgraded yet? Oh, there's a leading question. <laughs> mm, I applied for a beta um, invitation as soon as I saw it mentioned. And eventually I got said beta invitation. And of course, as I do, no safety net required. I dived in and I upgraded. What a mistake that was. That took me uh, possibly the best part of a week to rectify. I tried it. I did back up everything first, obviously, and we were using BusyCal and I had to get the BusyCal version that works with a CalDAV and stuff. I don't actually know on, on in hindsight what on earth I thought I was upgrading for, but you know what you like. There's something new. You've got to try it. You do. 
I do, yes. <laughs> I noticed you didn't get your invitation through quite as quickly and, and were rather relieved about that. Yeah. It broke completely for me. It was a complete disaster. I lost everything, which you were supposed to. Uh, that that you, you were supposed to see that because you're moving your calendars from being stored locally to being stored on a Caldav server. So I expected that everything vanished. The problem was it didn't sort of timely return. There was no timely return for my information. When I eventually got it um, showing on my Mac, I then had to set about looking after what I had to do with my iPad and my iPhone. Um, and I th I'm thinking, I'm wondering when it was. Yeah, it was iPhone 4. So I also had an iPhone 3G as well. Nightmare. Nothing worked. Nothing worked at all. I managed to get the iPad having some information in the end. So I got some on there. I didn't get all the calendars. They, they would not all transfer. And the iPhone was having none of it. That would not show a thing. So I thought, hmm. Little bit early here. Early adoption's one thing. This was suicide. So I decided I would roll it back. And on, on the upside, the rollback procedure worked, which was just as well. So I, uh, you had to actually elect to leave the beta program. So I did. And I followed the instructions for, well, you said, have you upgraded? Yeah, yeah I, upgrade isn't a term I would use in relation to this. Side grade would be as far as I would go. So I actually elected to go back to the old system. And then I thought, what could possibly go wrong now? As I stroked my iPad and everything was fine. And my iPhone 3G was fine. And my iPhone 4 threw all the toys out of the pram. So I, I already had problems on there that it, it wasn't seeing calendars. For some reason, when I did this downgrade and it rolled back it put some calendars on there and i thought oh fantastic you know there's some calendars there they were the wrong calendars so i thought well, i'll just delete them that's what i'll do i'll delete them it's not actually that simple to delete these calendars it we just wasn't having it i ended up in in the end i tried a hard reboot all sorts it just would not let go of a subset of the upgraded information. So a subset of the information that it had had at some point on mobile me, the new version, and it would not let me delete it or whatever. I ended up deleting everything. So I scorched earth, all the calendars, all the settings, the Google stuff, every account that I had on the iPhone, I deleted the lot. And that was the only way I could actually get this thing to back where it was before really so i had to recreate every single thing so i every time another invitation came through so we've upgraded the beta do you want to have another look no thank you but no so mobile me is now out of beta and i've left it alone me me too i've left it alone as well i'm assuming at some point that you will actually be forced to in inverted commas upgrade but i'm hoping that that is a long way off because it really was very, very flaky for me. Uh, absolutely. I would not choose to go there again. I actually made a point then of looking at what the features were. And actually, when you involve BusyCal, it seems to be taking over a lot of what we share. We share calendars via the LAN with BusyCal, and you're not going to be able to do that. So I don't think it's something that one of us can do and not the other one. And of course, if I do something to change my calendar, it's not unusual for Mike to get a message to say 3000 appointments need to be updated. Is it OK to do that now? And you'll say, are you playing with the calendar again? <laughs> so whatever I do has an impact on you. Whatever you do has an impact on me. This is something we're going to have to sit down, look at our diagrams, look at what you can do with a new mobile me and try and work out something that in effect leaves us where we are now. 
it's Steve forcing us to upgrade again. Steve's the problem here. I'm sensing um, a thread here, a common thread. Uh, don't say that too loudly. No. But talking of busy cow. Oh, boy. Uh, what did I do? Broke it. Again? Mm, I know. <laughs> oh, the poor busy cow guy. You email him, don't you? And you say, she's broken it again. <laughs> I do. <laughs> yes, I've got it on Typeinator now. Elaine's found another bug. Uh, this one's very, very, very obscure, luckily. Unfortunately for me, I was looking at it thinking, I'm going insane. I'm going insane. Yes, it's um, an odd thing. I actually found it in April, but by the time I'd found it, it only applies for a week. It's only going to go haywire for a week. So I thought, well, we told them about it. They had a look at it. I actually did a video as well, didn't I, if you remember? And you sent the video off. I do. He was, he was um, well impressed with that. Oh, he was well impressed with it. We came back and he said, oh, no. You know, it, apparently, this thing needs a complete rewrite now. So <clears throat> I'm, I'm persona non grata. But it's happened again because um, the clocks went back this weekend in the UK. Uh, no, they went forward, didn't they? No, they went back. See, see what's happened to me? (laughs) All these problems with calendars, and I don't know whether I'm coming or going anymore. Uh, Yes, the calendars went uh, back. The clocks went back. So for this week and this week only, all the events that I have scheduled um, in four time zones in America are off by an hour. So I usually have an appointment at six o'clock on a Wednesday night. That will now be five o'clock. So problem I have is I assumed I because I'm sure I hadn't had this problem before I've obviously used iCal on a Mac for four years four and a half years now and I'd not seen this before so I just assumed it would work and what happened before I started using BusyCal was I would copy and paste events this this event is a recurring event but I don't have it entered as a recurring event actually recurring events can you imagine what it would do with that anyway I'm getting sidetracked I must try that Nightmare City. No, I mustn't because it might break even worse. I've broken it enough to start with. So these appointments that I have, I copy and paste them. And then I change the title because each one is a different subject. So that's what I've been doing for years and years in iCal. I don't tend to create new events. I tend to copy an event I've got and just change the title because the title keeps the time zone. It keeps the start time, it keeps the finish time. So it's much quicker to do that. And this was what I was doing. So come April, I looked at my clock, my calendar, and I thought, I'm sure that isn't that time. So I checked and what had happened was you have to to see this problem. It is very obscure. This is what you have to have in place to even see the problem. You have to have time zone support turned on. You have to have an appointment that you have assigned to a different time zone. So in my case, it is a meeting in LA. So it is Pacific time. You have to copy it from one time zone to another. So in my case, I was copying it from GMT and pasting it into BST, British Summertime. Now, of course, I'm going the other way. So if I copy from, say, September and I paste into the first week in November, Originally, it was British summertime and now I want it to be GMT. So you have to to see this. You have to copy from one time zone and paste into another. And then what happens is it retains the wrong time. Now, it was actually quite difficult to explain to the guys at BusyCal. But if I give you an example, all will become clear. I have an appointment. It is 10 a.m. Pacific time on Wednesday. Last week, that was six o'clock UK time in the evening. Next week, 
it will be five o'clock. So what I would expect is that what it retains is the 10 o'clock Pacific time, which iCal does. BusyCal does not. BusyCal retains 6 p.m. UK time. So for one week for me, because the week, the reason that it happens for one week, it would have be of no consequence whatsoever. But for the fact the UK clocks went back this week and in the US, they're not changing to daylight saving time till next week. Therefore, for one week and one week only, people, we are an hour missing. And sadly, so are all my appointments in BusyCal. So I had hung on and hung on, hoping that it would be fixed and, and it's not. So if you've noticed weird things happening in very specific circumstances and you're using BusyCal, that's what's going on. It's retaining the wrong time. It's keeping the UK time where I think what it should do is retain the time that you have actually put in. And the time is a function of two things. It's the time and it's the time zone that you specify. And I think in this day and age, a lot of people schedule appointments, meetings in one time zone and then actually partake of them in another. So even if it's sort of a, an online club that you've got and they're in one time zone, and you're in another. It, for me, it's this week. But if yours is in some somewhere else, some other country and their time zones are changing at different times, it isn't just this week that you could have the problem. It would be any week or any days, any amount of time where there is a, a different differentiation between your time zone and their time zone. Do you think that explains it enough? I think that that explains it perfectly, yes. Yeah, the, the summary of that is, I broke it again. It's balked. Mm, yes. It is now. Yes. So what I've had to do is, it, obviously it does work if you create a new appointment. So if I, if I had created my appointment on Wednesday and I created it from new, so I double click on Wednesday, I add an appointment, I tell it it's 10 a.m. Pacific time, it will come correctly, it will display 5 o'clock UK time, but it doesn't do that if you copy and paste it. So I must not be sloppy. I must not be lazy. I must create new appointments. So for the whole week, I can't paste anything in. I've got to create new appointments. Oh. Not happy. Yeah. Well, I've also got um, calendar problems as well. And it's along similar lines. It's all to do with daylight saving time. Um, I've decided that I want to have my work schedule available when I'm not logged into work. And I think we've discussed this before. But, uh, you know, you might think it's sad. But there's there's method in my madness because, you know, if, if Apple say new iPads are going on sale in two weeks time or they're coming to town to demo their latest stuff, then I need to know if I'm free and if I can book the day off. No, what you mean is you need to book the day off. Well, yes. Mm. <laughs> Even if Never I'm mind, see if you're free and book the day off. Just book the day off. <laughs> now, ideally, what I'd like to do is is have my exchange calendar available on my iPhone and iPad and my MacBook Pro. And um, if I was a Windows user at home, then I'd want to be able to sync my work calendar with my home PC uh, or my mobile devices, too. So this isn't just an, an Apple only issue. Now, theoretically, I should be able to do this via mobile me or you know, I'm sure there's some other um, similar service for Windows users. But the, the powers that be where I work don't allow it. They don't allow me to connect my uh, my iPhone to um, the Exchange server. I have actually asked about it and so have a lot of other people. So I'm not the only person that wants to do this. But I've actually come up with a, a workflow and uh, that is to export the Exchange calendar to a CSV file using Outlook. 
and then import the CSV file into Google Calendar. And then subscribe to the Google Calendar from my MacBook and sync the iPad or iPhone using MobileMe. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense to me. Now, the problem is because, well, several problems, but because the import is an import and not a sync, every time I export from Outlook, I've got to include everything from the beginning of the year. Now, I've got a separate Google Calendar for each year. And before I import the CSV file into Google, I've got to delete all the entries from that year's Google Calendar because otherwise I'll get duplicate entries. Now, apart from that issue, I found a major flaw, and that is daylight saving time or British summer time, as we call it. So if you consider these couple of scenarios, imagine that I've got an appointment in my uh, exchange calendar in Outlook from, uh, say, one o'clock to three o'clock on April the 5th. It displays in the CSV file as one o'clock to three o'clock, but in the Google calendar, it's displayed as two till four. And that's because April the 5th, and I'll just pick that date kind of at random, is after British summer time has kicked in. A second scenario is that um, I've got an appointment in my exchange calendar from 1 to 3 in the middle of March. And that displays in the CSV file and the Google calendar correctly as 1 to 3. So, in other words, between approximately the end of March and the end of October, which is generally when BST is, any appointments will be moved on by one hour in the Google Calendar. So it's, it's fine in the CSV. It's when it's in the Google Calendar. Now, I've got my Google Calendar time zone set to London GMT zero because there is no London GMT plus one or London BST option. And the only way around it, which is impractical given the number of times I run the export import process, um, I don't do it every time my calendar changes, but I do it regularly. And the only way around it that I can think is to amend the data in the CSV file. So because I can open that up in, in, uh, in Excel, do some kind of formula that looks at the date and, and changes the hour. So I've Googled the Google problem and uh, there's a lot of other people with the same issue, um, different time zones, different countries. But essentially, it's a, it's a daylight saving time issue. But nobody's found an answer, um, though Google do come in a lot in for a lot of criticism before, uh, for not fixing it. Now, I know we discussed this. So we discussed this the other day and you don't seem to think I can completely blame Google. You've got your own thoughts on this. Well, I'd just like to say first um, I, that you did say you came up with your own little solution. If you remember, you're probably ashamed of yourself. But as you were thumping the table and cursing, you said, I think I'll just leave it till next week. <laughs> yeah. Well, now, Which obviously would fix the problem for the next few months. Now BST has, uh, GMT has kicked back in. It Well, actually, it wouldn't solve it. It wouldn't solve it for, for historical appointments. If I want to go back and look at, at, at what's gone on in this year, it wouldn't solve it. You said historical then, and I heard hysterical. <laughs> but th that was probably because you virtually were hysterical. Yes. And um, I said it, that, yes, if Google had um, a time zone, that was GMT plus one London or 
BST London that that would solve the problem. But I then said, well, I have um, a calendar that I'm subscribed to on Google. I access it through iCal or I access it through BusyCal and it's fine. So why am I not seeing this problem? So I went and I checked and I had my Google Calendar set exactly the same way you did and I wasn't seeing the problem. So I thought this is odd. So even though that Google don't have this time zone that you actually need to make it work, it's working for me. So there had to be another another difference. So I said to you, well, what exactly is Outlook sending out as the information? I expected it to send a time and a time zone. And with those two pieces of information, I would have imagined it would be very hard to go wrong because that's what you would get in iCal. That's what you would get in BusyCal. This problem I've got with BusyCal is very, very obscure. You're only going to find it in, you know, two weeks of the year when you're pasting here, standing on one leg and waving a chicken. It really is an obscure fault. But the, what you were describing, I thought, well, everybody's calendar is going to be off for six months it is the upshot of it. It can't be that. And when I said to you, well, what's Outlook sending out? You said to me, it's not saving the time zone. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't store time zone information uh, in, in Outlook. It just sets every appointment as being GMT and then applies an offset depending on where you tell it you are. Yeah. That's ludicrous. It, it would mean that you couldn't, it, it, well, it doesn't support multiple time zones then. Not, not, no, it doesn't. Not in that. No, not in that way. In that way. I can put in a local, I can put in a time zone. Well, no, I can put in an appointment all things being equal and not in the two weeks where there's a problem, unless I'm not copying and pasting. You're getting the gist of this now. It's very tricky. I could put in into BusyCal, into iCal, an appointment, and I could tell it that that appointment, the time of it, is 10 a.m. And then I can say to it, by the way, when I say 10 a.m., I mean Pacific time. So either Pacific Standard Time or Pacific Daytime. That's when that is. And it would say, fine, okay. And it will then display that correctly irrespective of where I am or where I'm telling it I am, it will, it will show it correctly. It will store the actual time I give it and the time zone. It does not convert it to GMT and then show me one time zone. It will, it will, I, have, I put things in from all sorts of time zones. It doesn't restrict me to just the one. Um, I actually, I, I'm really used to working with Pacific time and Eastern time. And I get very confused in the middle as to where places are in mountain time and central time. But I, ha I do use all four time zones, as long as I can work out what time zone the place I, I'm trying to put the meeting in actually works. But in your scenario, what you're saying there is it doesn't store the time zone. No. So you would put in 10 a.m. You haven't. Do you actually, can you actually tell it to you 10 a.m., but it's Pacific time? Or is there no option to even do that? I don't think there is, no. So you would have to convert that and say, the appointment isn't 10 a.m., it's 6 p.m. Yeah. And then if it was British summertime, you'd also have to amend an hour for that as well. Mm. You would have to do all the work. It would be a nightmare. But I did think that the, 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 the problem can be solved one of two ways. And no, waiting till next week wasn't one of them. That was your idea. The first way would be if Google did have a time zone that was GMT plus one, London, then that would work. But the other way, which would be far, far better and give you much more flexibility, is if Outlook just worked right. If Outlook stored the actual time you typed in and allowed you to specify what time zone that was, that would do it. So personally, I, I think Google are less to blame. And believe you me, I would love to put the knife in Google. Wave, wave, wave. So 
I think it would be better fixed if Microsoft fixed it. You could be right. But wasn't there something about Microsoft and time zones in Australia for the Sydney Olympics? Yes, there was, but I can't remember what that story was. I think it was all to do with time zones across the Olympics, and I think the time the daylight saving was changing during the Olympics, and they decided they'd have to move it because it would be easier. <laughs> a little bit like year 2000 shouldn't have been a leap year, but Microsoft thought it was, therefore it was. Therefore what they say rules. Exactly, which is dreadful. Mm. Not good. So you broke it as well. Okay, hands up, I broke it. But of course this week everything will be fine. As long as you don't put in your hysterical appointments. <laughs> With copy and paste. <laughs> With copy, Don't copy and paste anything, please, no. Right, I'm going to move on. I think you should. Enough of this. Okay, um, yeah, I use my iPad extensively at work. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody sees my iPad. Outside of my team, everyone sees my iPad and they say, ooh, is that a company provided one? They're all jealous. Um, so, yes, I use my iPad ex extensively at work. Um, I have meetings, I attend workshops, I need to make notes. And initially, um, I use the built-in notes app, which I think is adequate. It's nicer than the iPhone app. It's got that leatherette look, hasn't it? You're impressed by leatherette. I'm saying nothing. The font does it for me. Oh, I've got this image of you now in leather. Really? Sorry, carry on. We're back to the thongs, aren't we? We haven't mentioned thongs all episode. <laughs> well, why have we got leather thongs now? Oh my, a special line for Christmas, leather thongs. Yeah. Yes, the main downside is the font. Uh, it's that kind of felt font which can't be changed. Now, sometimes I need to make just a, a quick note. You know, if I'm going off to a meeting, I just need to scribble down the room number. So I use either the, the built-in app, I use plain text, or I use drop text, which are, are two other apps that I've got which integrate with Dropbox. But yeah, they're, they're just quick note-taking. But sometimes I, I need to create a quick diagram, and um, I often find that it's quicker to uh, to write um, than type sometimes as well if I'm making notes and that's where penultimate comes in so what I'm going to do is is do a little review of penultimate it's uh, an app for the the iPad it doesn't use the keyboard you either have to use your finger or um, a pogo stick stylus whatever it's actually called a pogo sketch and um, it's uh, it's a great little stick. <laughs> oh, I can't describe it. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. But it's a put a picture of it wearing a, a MacBite's thong. Mm, yeah, it's a, it's a great device, and it lets you it lets you write and it lets you draw on the on the glass. Now you can actually get um, different types of pogo sketches, um, different makes. But what ribbed and sensitive? <laughs> I'd say nothing. Sorry, You're really... I was thinking of how to describe it, and I was thinking it's like a pen with a rubber end on, and that set me off. But I'm sorry, do carry on. I was I was fascinated by your review. It's like a pen with a furry end on it, actually. Really? <laughs> now we're getting worse. Um, yes, it, it allows you to write. It allows you to draw on the glass. You've just got to be careful to get a decent one because otherwise you can scratch the glass. Anyway, uh, back to... Because uh, you, can, you can also use your finger as well. Not a giggle in sight. Because? Take my mouth off. <laughs> Oh, it's late. What can I say? Yeah, 
You've, I'm lost now. You're losing it. I'm losing it now. Yeah. Back to penultimate. In fact, I'd go so far as to say you've lost it. No, no, I haven't. Back to, pen- Back to penultimate. On running the app for the first time, what you get is you get um, a single closed notebook. So it's it's a note-taking app. I think I've said that already. It's a note-taking app. Um, you can have multiple notebooks. And um, when you have multiple notebooks, they're displayed on the screen as a a single row of notebooks and they're closed what you see is the front cover uh, and each front cover has a title which you create uh, it's called untitled and you go in and you can type your own uh, title that's actually the only time the keyboard is used to create and edit the title they've just released a new version which gives you the ability to display multiple notebooks on this initial screen so it's like a launch pad and what it does is it displays the first page of each notebook which is handy because that means that you can you can see the the content and what you do you just tap the cover of the notebook and that opens it and then you can start writing now as i've said it doesn't support the keyboard uh, so you write with your finger or a stylus as with any app of this nature the handwriting uh, can look a bit spidery but it's uh, it's legible, and I think I've I've done it enough now that I'm starting to get the hang of it, and I can actually read my handwriting. Have you have you noticed actually over the years, the more typing you do and the less writing you do, your handwriting gets worse, or mine has anyway. Oh, I agree. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah, uh, slightly off point there, but um, it was originally limited to just a black pen and no choice of thickness. But actually, this new version, you can have different colours, and uh, you can have three thicknesses of pen, so three thicknesses of nib. It's it's quite good. To write, you just simply um, use the stylus or use your finger to uh, to to write on the screen. Um, but what you've got to remember is you can't pinch or zoom or scroll with your finger. And I have, on many occasions, tried to pinch and zoom on the screen. But the thing is that if you've got the, the pen active, um, then all you end up doing is drawing another line on the screen. Fantastic. Yeah. So how do you scroll? You've, you've, you've got to use like a, a scroll bar. Is the scroll bar there all the time? I think the scroll bar's there all the time on the right-hand side from memory. That would be quite awkward if it's on the right-hand side if you're left-handed. It would, yeah. Or is there a scroll bar? I can't even remember if there's... I, I don't think there's a scroll bar, actually. I don't think there is. Because what you've got, you've got multiple pages, and what you do is you tap the bottom right-hand corner, which has the page number, or the bottom left-hand corner, and that takes you on to the next page it creates a new page or if you've got multiple pages it takes you on to the next page or the one on the left hand corner takes you back to the previous page so that's how you navigate i don't think actually there is a scroll bar you're lying to me yeah mm. yeah i'm just thinking visually in my mind there is an eraser so there's a rubber so back to your um never mind your onward <laughs> Yes, there is an eraser and you can either erase the whole page in one go or you can just rub your finger over uh, the bit that you want to get rid of. You've you've also got um, different types of paper. You've got graph paper, you've got lined paper, or you've got plain paper. 
and uh, you can't change that even when you've got content on there so if you've typed a whole load of or written written a whole load of text or diagrams and then you want to change the paper type you can do that and then you can export it you can export it as a pdf and, and email it it's also got something called wrist rest say that again wrist rest protection on it which is handy um so that you're not leaning on the bottom of the the glass on the bottom of the ipad and uh sort of accidentally drawing something and yes yeah, some wrists are more sensitive than others aren't they they are because i i forgot that that was turned on and i said to you the other day i said um this seems to be broken i'm trying to write at the bottom of the page and uh you know it's rubbing it out automatically and you you kind of looked at it and and just well said, I've never actually seen the application before that isn't something that isn't the way I would work taking notes so I hadn't seen it before and I, you demonstrated it you were drawing and squiggling away and it it appeared and then it just vanished so I you thought it was an upgrade issue I thought it was probably a setting somewhere and there was only two settings there so I was surprised really you hadn't found it yeah I forgot it was turned on but uh, overall it's a good app it does exactly what I want it is a good app so that is that's penultimate. Oh, well, I shall have to uh, do a review of my um, note-taking app of choice, but I think that'll have to wait till next week. Yeah. For this week, let's move on with a MacBiter. Yes, from Steve Robb, who was replying to me, bemoaning that only O2 had visual voicemail on their iPhone tariffs. When we were looking at iPhone 4s, I was quite surprised. Anyway, Steve sent us an audio file outlining an excellent alternative. So, over to you, Steve. Hello. As Elaine hinted at in MacBytes 45, there is a visual voicemail replacement service available. However, as we will find out later, this will not help Elaine and her Vodafone pay-as-you-go sim. For me though, it began with a change in jobs, and I very quickly became aware that from my new location, the O2 phone signal was, well, non-existent. And after chatting with my colleague, I decided to plump for orange and was just about to pull the trigger on one of the SIM options when I came across a deal breaker. Yep, you guessed it. No visual voicemail. Having had visual voicemail from my original iPhone, then losing it for a bit when I moved to Simplicity, before getting it back again on Simplicity for iPhone, I didn't want to lose it for a second time. But it would appear that O2 is the only network in the UK to support it. Thankfully, after a quick Google search, I came across a service called HelloMail, and you can find them at hellomail.com. HelloMail works not only on the iPhone, but on BlackBerry and Android devices as well. It is worth noting that free is only free provided your network provider does not charge you for forwarding calls, you remain within your bundled minutes, and also within any data cap you may have but this should not be a problem with the majority of iPhone tariffs. Unfortunately though, the story is very different on page you go, as most of the UK providers will not allow you to divert your voicemail to Hulu Mail. 3 and GIFGAF are the only exceptions. The service itself works by diverting calls to one of their 0330 numbers instead of your normal voicemail. These are UK-wide numbers at a geographic rate and most providers simply take minutes from your talk time for these calls. Signing up is a painless affair, beginning with downloading the HoloMail app from the App Store to your iPhone. When you're on the app for the first time, tap the Sign Up button at the bottom of the screen and answer a few simple questions. 
such as name network provider. Strangely though, in the version of the app I started looking at, the fields for entering and confirming your password were titled Vodafone Password. Thankfully, this has been fixed today in the software update. Once the sign-up process is completed, the app places three entries in your iPhone contacts list. One to activate the service, one to deactivate the service, and the third is a voice portal that allows you to call to listen to your messages should you wish. The next step is to go to your contacts list and call the activate number. This simply sets up the required diverts. Then go to your nominated email and click the verification link. The iPhone app allows you to manage many of your settings straight from the phone, but really needs to be used in conjunction with the website for complete control. The app, however, is the only method that allows you to manage and record greeting and control push notifications. When you visit the website for the first time, you will quickly notice that the service is only currently available to customers in the US, UK and, most recently, Ireland. Once logged in, you're faced with an array of tabs, within which many of the settings replicate functionality within the iPhone app, but it's certainly worthwhile spending a minute or two looking through the choices and settings that are available. As expected, you can manage your messages and listen to them from the site. The fourth tab contains one single option, which sets where Hollow Mail gets your contact details from, and can be Google, phone or none. I chose to use my phone as the source, which seemed to work well, but there is no way to view what data has been synced with the service. The email tab allows you to set up the email address to which you wish your messages to be sent. It has support for more account type and includes specific options for Gmail, MobileMe, Yahoo and Hotmail. It does ask for your email address and password and gives a tick box to keep HelloMail in sync with your email. The emails you receive contain the caller's name if known and the message in MP3 format. Handy if you wish to keep it for any reason. Message quality is pretty reasonable, given the file size is only around 200k per minute. Messages can also be listened to directly from the app, with the messages downloaded and displayed visual voicemail style. When listened to within the iPhone, you have the option to call back and also record a message that will be sent via email. The service has a complete range of notification options, which are email, push notification and even text message and can be used in any combination. One gotcha I did come across after moving to Orange was the matter of missed calls while out of network coverage. Calling 1471 from an Orange phone tells you rather unhelpfully that Orange does not support this service and that you should check the call log on your handset. Thankfully, HelloMail also includes an option to be alerted to missed calls. This works when the caller reaches this service but does not leave a message and you're alerted in the usual way. I've been using the service for a month now and even though there are a couple of minor oddities in the software, the service has been working very well and provides me with functionality that Orange doesn't. If you're not on O2, it is definitely worth trying out and I would go as far as recommend the O2 user give it a spin. Their website has some useful help videos and the handy frequently asked questions section should you have any problems. Well, that's all from me. Bye. 
So thanks for that, Steve. I'm really impressed. And yes, I must admit, I'm a little bit disappointed that I have to use my pay-as-you-go minutes to use it. But it sounds like it could actually be worth it, though. So massive, massive thanks to you for taking the time to send us the file. Much appreciated. And Steve wasn't the only MacBiter taking to the airwaves. We have an audio file from Jane. So over to Jane. Hi, Elaine and Mike. Jane in Perth here. Just wondering if you had any thoughts on using a portable external hard drive as a time machine backup drive. As you know, I recently bought one of the new, one of the new unibody style Mac minis, which I use as a media server, and what a gorgeous piece of shiny aluminium it is. Anyway, I currently have the Mac Mini backing up on the network to my time capsule. Now you'd think that'd be fine, but my MacBook Pro also backs up to the time capsule, and it's one of the first versions with a miserly 500 gigabyte hard drive. So with the Mac Mini having large media files regularly added and deleted, the poor old time capsule is forever telling me it's running out of space. I know you're a fan of Seagate external hard drives, and on your recommendation, I've already purchased a couple of these, but I find the noise of the external drives starting up mildly irritating in the media setup, and thought that if I used a USB-powered portable drive, it would operate silently. I'm guessing the speed of the file transfers would be relatively slow, but for backup purposes, I don't think that matters too much. So, are there any downsides to this cunning plan of mine? Oh, and by the way, Mike, there is nothing wrong with taking your iPhone to bed with you. Not that I would ever do such a thing. <clears throat> All right, I admit, I sleep with my iPhone. For podcast listening purposes, obviously. See you, guys. Well, I'm glad I'm not the only one that takes my uh, iPhone to bed. Not only does it act as my alarm clock, it, uh, it also acts as my uh, bedtime Twitter feed. Haven't you got a little bit of a confession to make about using your iPhone 4 as an alarm clock? Oh, is this when I changed the... Yes, um, that's, that's exactly what you did. Yes, you I've tell got, the MacBiters? I've got, <laughs> I've got three alarms set and what I did is um, I, I went in and edited the time of one of them because I was getting up at a different time. But I forgot, <laughs> I forgot to edit the sound that it makes. So instead of the default sound, it was uh, the mayor barking sound. <laughs> yes, which is bound to giddy him at silly o'clock. Yeah, well... Scared me witless, I'll tell you. Yeah, well, let's get back to a sensible discussion on hard drive, shall we? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Jane has made some excellent points. Um, I must say, I don't use Time Machine because at the very beginning, there, there was no way to control when it kicked in and what it did and stuff like that. So I didn't go down that route, although I can see the benefit of it. And I know now that there are applications that will let you schedule your backups, which I think are, are essential. Um, but in terms of uh, hard drives, you mentioned the Seagate drives that I recommended. I love my Seagate drives. They are, have been very reliable. Um, I've not had all the problems that I had with the Lassie ones. And I bought so many of them, believe me, I did, that I haven't actually had to look at hard drives for a while. But I did recently have a look um, in light of what your comments and I was amazed at the lack of Firewire drives that are available at the moment. There's lots of USB 2s. There's also lots of eSATA drives and USB 3s. Obviously, they are no use to me with an iMac. So I was quite surprised at the sort of change in emphasis on the drives. What I've done since then is I've completely changed how I do my backups. I think I have mentioned before, maybe one or two times, 
that I have huge problems with Lassie power supplies. They just don't seem up to the job. The drives themselves are not, well, they're as reliable as anything else, but the power supply is dreadful. So what I decided to do was I thought I'm not prepared to rely now on the power supply of any drive at all. I have had other drives break and I've had other power supplies break, but just nothing like the Lassie ones. They just seem to pop whenever they feel like it. So what I decided to do was buy some cradles and some bare drives. And that is how I'm backing up at the moment. I'm finding it's really flexible and it's very easy to upscale. The only thing with them is that they're obviously not pretty. They don't look pretty, but I'm just hiding them behind cupboards and things. So I'm not actually noticing and I'm putting them in other rooms as well. So if you had the ability to put um, a drive in another room, you wouldn't have the noise problem. And it's a good way to back up anyway. You don't particularly want your backup drive in the same location. So I'm finding that that's working really well. Um, I can swap the drives as and when needed. So I, I've pretty much got a range now of bare drives. That I put labels on the side of and just swap, swap them in and out as I want to make various backups. And I'm finding that really, really handy. Uh, I think you've done the same, haven't you? I have done the same. Yeah, I've got um, I've got a couple of bare drives with a couple of cradles, and they just sit out of sight under my desk. Uh, one uh, I use for storing sort of archive data, and also I I image my hard drive on the MacBook Pro to it. And then the other one is a complete um, clone of of the first drive. I was actually using uh, an eSATA on the cradle. Uh, because I've got the, the Express card slot on the MacBook Pro, so it was going in there. But I was finding that uh, it was actually... Cr well, I, mean, I think that that was causing a lot of the crashes on my machine. It was it was the it was a complete crash where you get all the, the, the multi-language error message. A kernel screen. panic. Kernel panic, that was it. Um, I haven't had one for so long, I forgot what it was called. Yeah, probably since you took the eSATA card out. Yeah, that's it. Well, I took the eSATA card out. I've gone back to USB and it seems to be okay. A little bit slower, but, you know, I'll live with that for the, for, for the lack of kernel panics. I thought when you had them on the eSATA and they were working, that it is a lot, lot faster. It's a lot, lot faster. So I'm looking forward to eSATA and USB 3 being on future Macs. Obviously, until then, I'm using USB as well. And I find for backups, I'm not overly concerned about you know, having Firewire and things. Firewire is great when I want to have a scratch drive for Photoshop or Final Cut Pro. And I really want it to be when I'm working and I, I need it to be as fast as possible. I made the decision with the backup drives that I'd let them back up overnight and on a schedule. So it didn't really matter. Because of that, though, I did look at the cost of the drives. I went for two terabyte drives and the cheapest I could find were Hitachi. They've proved to be reasonably reliable. Um, the, the speed is great. They are 7,200 7, um, RPM. So from that perspective, they're OK. But I will say they are very, very noisy. You can hear it across the room. So I do put them completely out of the way and transfer them to other locations. I did when I couldn't get um, one of the Hitachis get a Western Digital. It was slower. It's just a bare drive, you know, very similar, but it was slower. Um, and I went for that one. It's one that they're, they're tending to call slow drives now eco-friendly. Have you noticed that? If you see a drive and it says eco drive or green drive, when you actually look at the spec, they're really poor. So when it says eco, that's what it actually means. So I could only get that one. So I thought, well, I'll just take it anyway. It's only backup. I'm not really concerned. And the one thing I'll say with it is it's amazingly quiet. Literally sat next to me. I can't hear it at all. 
But going back to Jane's issue, I think you're, you're along the right track of having an external drive like that, um, that's not powering up and powering down. I'd say, though, is Time Machine the best way with a media centre? Because the files are quite large. Um, I think if you could schedule it, then you'd obviously want to schedule it when it wasn't playing. So if you could schedule your time machine backups around when you're more likely to use it, that would probably work better, I think. What I do with my media Mac, I've got a Mac Mini that I use as a media centre, I actually schedule a super duper overnight and I do it that way. I can't see me using Time Machine for that, even if I was using Time Machine, because I probably want to recover the whole thing maybe to another machine. So that's what I would do with it. But I agree with your idea with the drive. I don't see a problem with that at all. But also maybe you could take the drive off there, move it to somewhere else and actually transfer the files and then take it back. So without being tethered to power supplies and things, I think that's definitely the way to go. Uh, now, you've got one like that that you take to work, haven't you? Yeah, I've got a little one that uh, just sits in my bag and uh, I can plug it in uh, whenever I need to. I'm trying desperately not to giggle at that. And I think I'm doing incredibly well. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, yes, Jane, absolutely. I think that's the way to go. The Seagates, though, I'm glad you like them because I absolutely adore my Seagates. They have been very, very good drives. And I'm glad I got so many when I did, because although that that drive in particular, the model that I think we both have, and I've got lots of them lined up, as, as I think you've seen the image, um, you can no longer buy them. But it's ridiculous. It's still the number one drive in, I think it's Mac Format magazine. They are still recommending the one terabyte Seagate and you've not been able to buy it for easy seven or eight months. And I keep thinking they will bring out the two terabyte version. It will be here soon, soon, soon. And it's still not out. I've looked at sites that are saying, you know, it, they're awaiting delivery. But there's still absolutely nothing. And the other ones are slower than that one. So Seagate wise at the minute, I'm a bit bereft. If I wanted to buy any more, I really would have a problem because I can't see too much in the way of Firewire. And I do like using the Firewire. So I'm hopeful that they'll do something, but nothing yet. So we shall have to see. But it was very good to hear from you anyway, Jane. And uh, more feedback um, from Mark. Just listening to an old MacBytes on file management and uh, spotted uh, this site and this site. I'll put the link in the show notes, but it's to do with Print Finder. Uh, has a snow leopard warning. In Mac OS 10.6, Apple has made many changes, most of them located in the depths of the system. Print Finder works under OS 10.6, but over the weeks, many bugs have appeared. The problem is that one bug fix creates another 10, and when a bug is corrected under OS 10.6, it can generate incompatibilities with OS 10.4 and 10.5. Given the immensity of the task and the lack of time to correct everything, development and support of Print Finder are no longer assured. If you're an Xcode developer and want to resume the development of Print Finder, please contact me. That's actually quite sad because mm. I think even though I don't tend to print too much out, I do tend to print directory listings yeah. to or folder listings to PDFs. And I did use that. So that's quite sad to hear. It is. Another one bites the dust. Um, print Finder was good. Um, I have got an alternative, though, in that I use uh, Pathfinder. That has lots and lots of options for things like that. But sometimes it's overkill and you just really just wanted a quick um, list. And that was great for it. So that's quite sad to hear. I must admit, I don't think I installed it when I rebuilt my machine, though. So maybe I'd seen that. I can't remember. 
And thanks to Derek. Um, Derek's uh, given us details of a leather case for the iPad called Snug. Oh, we're back to leather again. There we are. Snug leather case, £29.99 from Amazon. I'll, uh, I'll stick a, a link in the show notes. And very nice it looks too. So thanks it for It does. That, it's Derek. actually quite similar to the Apple one, but it's the same price in leather. Yeah. Or was the Apple one 25 No, it was 30 quid. Oh. In that case, the leather one is certainly a good deal. Mm. And we also heard from Mac Jim. Good to hear from you, Mac Jim. And guess what Mac Jim wanted? What did Mac Jim want? To know where we were. We're here. <gasps> Mia culpa. Mia <laughs> culpa. And you a culpa as well. Yes. I don't think that's proper Latin, is it? I don't Anyway, know. we're back, Mac Jim. We're back again. Yes, we're back. So it's very, very good to hear from you anyway. And I do hope you've not managed to lose the subscription and that you're listening to this. If you are. Write it again. Put a, put a comment on the show notes and I'll know you're there. It wouldn't be the same without you. One of our original Mac biters is McJim. He is. And in true Jobsy fashion, wasn't there one more thing? Oh, yes. There were unconfirmed reports flooding the internet of a sighting of Mickey the Mac Bites Magic Mouse, wait for it, on my desk. You got something to tell us then? No, it'll just have to wait until next time. Sorry, Andy, but the show's going long. It'll have to wait till next time. Well, that's it for this episode of Matt Bites. And as always, we would love to hear from you. So please send your questions, comments and queries by email to MacBitesUK at gmail.com. Use the contact form on the website or follow Stephen Jane's lead and send us an audio file. We'd love to hear the MacBiters for real. So how about leaving a comment on the show notes at MacBites.co.uk. Sign up for the newsletter. Don't forget the newsletter. Same place, MacBites.co.uk. And we're on Twitter as well, twitter.com slash MacBytes. You can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. So until next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. So, the Pogo Stick episode. Stylus.